Nehemiah chapter 10 in the Chairback Bibles is on page 406. <clears throat> the title of the message this morning is Prioritize God First. That's also the theme of our service. And as we, <clears throat> as we consider God's word this morning, the question that I ask us to even examine our own hearts and lives about is, is God our priority? Is he the priority of your life, of my life? And if he is, what does that look like? If he's not, what things need to change in order to make God the priority in our lives? And I think what we'll see this morning is the priorities of our lives define who and what we live for. And this is a truth that we need to wrestle with. The priorities of our lives define who and what we live for. This morning, I want to answer this question What happens when God's people prioritize the worship of God in their lives? What happens when God's people prioritize worshiping God in their lives? And in order to answer that question, I'm going to answer, I'm going to give you one other question to help answer that one, okay? So the question is, who and what am I living for? Who and what am I living for? So this morning, I want us to, each of us, to evaluate our life's priorities in light of the gospel of Christ. We're going to understand the dynamics of of covenant renewal. We've got to understand some of the things that were happening for the people of Israel at this juncture and at this point in their community of faith and in their life. And so let me give you a quick recap of Nehemiah and bring us up to speed and then we'll read the text. The first half of Nehemiah in verses Uh, chapters 1 through 6 focus on rebuilding the wall around the city. And then the second half of Nehemiah, chapters 7 through 13, focus on rebuilding the spiritual lives of God's people, the community of faith. And so in chapter 7, Nehemiah, he, he dug around and he dug out the genealogical record and he took inventory of all the people who were part of God's covenant people, who were listed as part of God's covenant people. Then chapter 8, Pastor Drew preached and he shared how they read from the book of the law and they elevated God's word to the central point of their community life. And in chapter 9, we saw that the people responded to God's word by confessing their sin and crying out in praise to God for the mercy that God had shown them as they recapped the complete history of Israel as a nation from being freed from bondage in Egypt all the way until they got into the promised land and then were exiled and then they are where they are at this point. And so that's kind of a quick recap. Now let's look at chapter 9 verse 38 and follow along with me as I read. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. The sealed document. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. And then there's a list that he goes through. All of the names of the priests and the Levites and the nobles, the princes, the leaders of the people. And then we pick up in verse 28. And in verse 28 it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers... The singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. 
their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the lands or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burn offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and all the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. According to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our heads and of our flocks, of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine, the oil, the pre- to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites, the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. Verse 39. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers we will not neglect the house of our God pray with me father it's a joy to be able to read your word this morning and we pray that by your holy spirit you would illumine our minds open our eyes And teach us truth for our lives according to your word. Help us to understand and to live faithfully following after you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now in chapter 10, Nehemiah, he gives us a window into the Israelites' lives as a community of faith. It shows us how a community of faith rightly responds to brokenness over sin. Their response is a response of renewing the covenant. And here's what they're doing. They're prioritizing their lives by putting God first. As the covenant people of God, they had broken God's covenant. And consequently, by breaking God's covenant, they had experienced God's just condemnation for their sin and disobedience. They had been exiled. 
But now we're at the point in in the story, the narrative of the nation of Israel, where they have now come out of exile. They've returned to the land. But you see, God hasn't yet initiated this new covenant that he prophesied through Jeremiah. And this new covenant that he prophesied through Jeremiah was the one that Mr. Al referenced earlier from Hebrews chapter 10. This new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, this covenant had not yet come to come to pass. Christ had not yet come. And so what do the people do as they're returning to the land and they're they're rebuilding the wall? They've rebuilt the wall around the city and. They're rebuilding their spiritual lives. The people take it upon themselves to make a covenant, to keep the covenant. That's what happens in in chapter 9, verse 38. Why do they do this? Why do they do this? They needed something to live for. They needed a rally point for their community of faith. They they needed to make a, a, a commitment that cost them something. And so they make a firm commitment, it says in verse 38 of chapter 9, to walk in the covenant. They need to be reminded of God's law in a way that would hold them accountable in their daily lives. I think their actions taken in Nehemiah 10 is a good example for us today. The new covenant of Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It was Christ's blood shed on the cross who makes all who believe in him members of the new covenant. And so those who participate in the new covenant that Jeremiah references that we see in the New Testament are those who have by faith trusted in Christ's redemptive work on the cross. This is the new covenant that Mr. Al referenced earlier. This is the new covenant that every believer who has professed faith in Christ is in. It is an eternal covenant. It is a covenant that will guarantee us to be in the eternal presence of God eternally, forever. I said eternal a few many, too many times. God, God has made a way for us to come into his presence. And it's through the blood of Christ, through the blood of a new covenant. And so the Israelites' example, it shows us something. It shows us that making a commitment to keep the covenant is their way of holding one another accountable as a community of faith. You know, similarly, we we do the same thing through the church covenant, don't we? When we as believers come together, we we affirm, or as we come and join this body, we affirm the, the church covenant 
When believers desire to, to join Crosspoint, we ask them to affirm the covenant that we hold to as a local congregation. And, and what, are, what does our covenant do? It succinctly outlines the biblical imperatives for the New Testament church from Scripture. And you know what it does? It helps us to have a rally point, so to speak. It helps us to, to rally around a, a firm commitment. It holds us to accountability as a community of faith, and it points us up. It points us upward. It points us to holding up God's word as the centerpiece of our fellowship. One of the convictions we have as elders is that we need to, we need to highlight our membership covenant during our quarterly members meeting. And so we hope to begin doing that by reading it together. But you see, the people of Israel made a covenant to keep the covenant. And in verses 1 through 29, they actually took another step. They actually signed their names on this commitment, on this document, on this covenant. They actually said, we're going to put our names here because our names mean something. And we want to go on record before God and before one another that we are going to do these things to prioritize God in our lives. And so they signed the document. Notice Nehemiah's first in verse 1. Nehemiah the governor. He, he's the first one to sign the document. It was followed by verse 8. The, the, the priest signed. Verse 9, the Levites signed. Followed by the chiefs of the peoples in verse 14. And then also followed by the rest of the people in verse 28. The people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, singers, the temple servants. All who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God signed it. You know what they were doing? As a community of faith, they were prioritizing God in their lives. And so we learned from the Israelites that the priorities of our lives define who and what we live for. Listen to the second part of verse 29. This is what they covenanted to do. We enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. You know, it goes to say that if, if our priority in life is the almighty dollar, then we're going to live to work, to make the dollar, right? We're, we're going to live to justify everything we do in order to make money. Or, 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 or if our priority in life is just having fun, then that's, that's what we'll live for. If our priority in life is to accumulate stuff or, or wealth, then, then that's what we'll live for. We'll never be content. We'll always want something else. If our priority in life is, is living to please others and thinking about what others think about us, then we'll search for approval in every relationship. But listen, if our priority in life is to live for Christ, then our identity will be found in Christ. Our, our hope will be found in Him, and, and our direction in life will be taken from Him. And so this morning, I want to suggest three priorities of gospel-centered living from Nehemiah chapter 10. Three priorities of gospel-centered living. The first one is we must guard purity in our marriages. We must guard purity in our marriages. We get this in verse 30. Verse 30 says, here's the first stipulation of the covenant, the first commitment. We will not give our daughters daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Why was this important? 
Verse 28 says they had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. In other words, they had separated from something, from the abominations of lawless people, from those who had no desire to live for or to serve God, and they, they even were worshiping false gods. They had separated themselves from something, and they had separated themselves to something. And that which they had separated themselves to was the law of God. They were devoted to living and worshiping one true God. Here was the problem with intermarriage. Intermarriage undermined their relationship with God. The reason is marriage sets the trajectory for a whole host of family issues. If a husband and wife disagree about who God is and what it means to live in right relationship with him, then God will not be the priority of that home. God may be the priority of one one person's life in that home, but God will not be the overarching priority of that home. And consequently, they wouldn't carry out Deuteronomy 6, the Torah, the law of God, to train your children everywhere you go, when you sit down, when you raise up, when you walk by the way. And so marriage was important. Marriage was important because marriage is a display of God's love for his people. We see in Genesis 2. When God saw that Adam was alone, he said it's not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18. So God created woman as a helper to man. And in marriage, through physical union, man and, and woman become one flesh. And this oneness describes a deep sense of sharing and intimacy between spouses. And so here's the thing. Marriage highlights the relationship between God in Israel, in the Old Testament, and between Christ and the church in the New Testament. You see, the New Testament tells us that marriage is actually a display of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. In fact, marriage displays God's covenant love toward humanity. Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ is the husband and head of the body, the church, and that he died to save her, and that the church in return submits to the love of Christ, her husband, her savior. What's the point? The point is this radical truth and this radical love is to be displayed in the covenant union between a husband and a wife today. And so marriage becomes the display or the picture of the gospel to all who look in upon it. Ephesians 5, 22 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Listen, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 31 says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting from Genesis, and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Then listen, the mystery, this mystery is profound but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen, church, husbands and and wives, 
We want our marriages to to paint a portrait of the gospel for all to see. This is why Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what does righteousness have in common with lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? You see, it was of great importance to guard marriage among the people of Israel, among the community of faith. How then do we prioritize to guard purity in our marriages? I think for those who are married, it means simply this. Husbands, wives, work together to achieve oneness in your marriage. Make Christ the center of the home. This means husbands, guard your eyes, guard your mind. Guard against lustful thoughts. Guard against lusting through social media. Guard against lustful direction or thoughts. Guard against the, the, the sites that you visit online. Guard against looking at pornography. Don't do it. Wives, guard your emotions. Don't talk to other men about your husband. Respect your husband. Confide in a, a friend that's female, but don't talk to other men about your husband. Talk to your husband's. Enjoy the husband and the wife that that God has given us. Pray together. Talk about God's word. Memorize scripture together. Let Christ be the center of our homes. And by all means, guard our mouths. (laughs) Don't say things before we think. Don't create bickering within the home. Let the home be a place of refuge where Christ is honored, where God is exalted. Teach our children what it means to love God and to live for him. Discipline your children and disciple your children to work diligently, work diligently rather at teaching them to walk with God and to obey God and teaching them God's word. We could go on and on, couldn't we? How do we do this if we're in a difficult situation? Married to a non-believing spouse. I want first to note that scripture exhorts that you remain married. Let your conduct itself be a testimony of God's grace in the gospel toward your unconverted spouse. Pray for his or her salvation. 1 Peter 3.1 or 1 Corinthians 7.14 highlight this. And secondly, if your spouse remains or separates hear the words of scripture first corinthians seven fifteen. but if if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so in such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved god has called you to peace for how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife i would add for those who are single how do we prioritize to guard purity in our lives for those who are single i would I would add that if you're single, this is foundational. Hear me out this morning. Choose wisely who you marry. Commit yourself to following the counsel of God's word and don't be unequally yoked. Marry someone who worships Jesus and has a passion to worship Jesus like you worship Christ. Scripture is clear. And it points us to this truth. Healthy Christ-centered families lead us to a healthy Christ-centered faith community. Healthy Christ-centered families lead to 
a healthy, Christ-centered faith community. The community of faith in Nehemiah's day knew if they were going to make serving God a priority and living for God a priority, it had to begin in their home, had to begin in their marriages. Church, it's no different for us today. Husbands and wives, what must change in your home to make God the priority? What must be weeded out and put in its place to prioritize the guarding of purity in your marriage? Single person, what does this say or or change about who and what you're looking for in a mate? You see, the priorities of our lives define who and what we live for. The second priority I want us to see, we must trust God's faithfulness in our daily lives. In verse 31, we see this. In verse 31, they they commit to three things. And so for, for for the Jew, trusting God's faithfulness was lived out in three very practical ways. First, they say, we will not buy any goods on the Sabbath or on a holy day. What was the point of this? Well, buying goods from people of the land, had become a permissible way to skirt around God's law because they didn't actually do the harvesting of the crops, so they were just to go and to buy the crops. But fundamentally, it missed the point of what keeping the Sabbath was all about. To keep the Sabbath was to trust and to exercise great trust in God. It was to go before God and just to rest. And it was to trust, get this, it was to trust that being restful was actually more productive than doing something. That's a level of trust and faith in God that God wanted his people to have. And so God had created the Sabbath for the people to set aside a day to find rest in him. And so they were to trust God by keeping the Sabbath holy. Secondly, they said, we're going to forego the crops of the seventh year. Now I want to submit to you that this takes takes a tremendous amount of faith. But they have, they have discovered that through the law, back in Leviticus 25, 21, and 22, that God would provide a bumper crop on the sixth year that was equivalent to three years if they would just keep the Sabbath. So on the sixth year, they would have enough for the sixth year. And they would have enough for the seventh year while they weren't farming the land. And they would have enough for the eighth year while they were planting the crops on the eighth year to get food for the ninth year. You see, God would provide a bumper crop. But what, what, would, we, what would we tend to do? We had a bumper crop this year. Let's build a bigger storehouse and let's keep going, right? That's the temptation. But you see, this is calling God's people to trust in him to depend upon him in everything, in their daily lives. They say we're going to forego the exaction of debts as well in the seventh year. Now, this required great trust also. They had to trust God in everything. If you want to make people feel uneasy, just start talking about money and forgiving debts. That's what the government does, right? Just start talking about forgiving debts and not collecting the money. And it requires a great trust in God. It requires trust that God provides, that God makes one rich. Here was the point. The point was that it freed God's people from bondage and enslavement. Remember what was happening in Nehemiah chapter 5? The poor people of the community had been working on the wall. They had had not been able to go out and to farm the fields. And because of that, they were behind on mortgage payments. They were behind on making payments. They couldn't keep up. 
and they were being forced to sell their children, their sons and daughters into slavery. They didn't have any other options. You see, the laws that God puts in place, they're not about legalism. They're about displaying God's grace and mercy towards his people. So trusting God dictated everything. It even dictated their calendar, the Sabbath day, the seventh year. It dictated their finances, forgiving debt on the seventh year. What does this mean for us today? Well, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Jesus said to the religious leaders in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over, even over the Sabbath. You see, the invitation to Sabbath is an invitation to truly find rest in this life and for eternity by being yoked together with Christ. Don't miss this. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary or who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what a yoke is? Some of you do. A yoke is this big wooden instrument tool that would hitch up to a team of oxen. And it would have a loop on the bottom of it. And it's just this big wooden, uh, wooden contraption. And it had a loop on each side. And so the neck of two oxen would go, or two cows would, would go into this yoke. And together, it would harness their power together to work and move forward and plow the field. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you want to truly find rest in life, if you truly want to find rest from sin and the burden that you're carrying around, yoke yourself together with me. Be yoked with me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You don't have to do this on your own. Be unified with me. And I'll give you rest, Jesus says. We'll truly find rest if we are yoked together with Christ Because it's his spirit that frees us from bondage to sin. It's the the blood of Christ that was spilt to make this new covenant. So he guides us. He leads us to experience life in him. And he leads us to experience life in connection with the faith community. Like the people of Israel, trusting God daily in our lives means he dictates everything in our lives. Even what our calendar looks like. Church, have you found rest in Christ this morning? Believer, have you found rest in Christ? Do you prioritize gathering regularly with God's people to worship him? Are you prioritizing trusting in God in your daily life? You see, the priorities of our lives define who and what we live for. People of Israel knew that. I want to give you one last priority, the third priority this morning as we close. The third priority is this. We must commit to worship God by supporting gospel ministry. This is huge. In verses 32 through 39, did you notice what each verse from verses 32 through 39, did you notice a kind of a a, a theme or or, or, or chief, one chief statement in those verses? 
It all had to do, it all revolved around the house of our God. In fact, verse 39 sums it up well. Verse 39 says, we will not neglect the house of our God. The people of Israel are committing to not neglecting God's temple You see, God's temple was a place of his dwelling. It represented his presence among his people. And these verses show us that the people's commitment was to support the ministry of the temple. They supported it with their finances. They supported it with their first fruits of produce. They supported it with their livestock, with their firstborn. They supported it even with their efforts and their work. Why'd they do this? They did it because prioritizing God in their lives meant enjoying his presence. And they desired to glorify God with all they had. They desired to glorify God with the best of what they had been blessed with. And they saw taking care of the temple as ministering to and worshiping God so that they might enjoy God's presence. What's that mean for us today? Well, there's not a temple in Jerusalem that we're taking up collections and sending money to to support the temple there. But instead, what we see in the New Testament is that God's people, we are the temple of God. First Peter chapter 2. In fact, that His Spirit dwells within the believer. That we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians 3.16. And so when we support, we are called here to support the gospel ministry. When we support the gospel ministry through the church by our tithes and our offerings, and even with our time, we are prioritizing the worship of God. When we come and lay our tithe and our offering before the Lord on the steps uh, on Sunday mornings, this is us worshiping God through giving Him of what He has blessed us with. There are numerous passages in the New Testament that speak about the believers supporting and the church supporting the work of the gospel ministry through the church. I've listed them there for you to go back and to look up and to reference. But here's the thing. They were committed to the priority of worshiping God through giving back to Him. You see, financial support of the gospel ministry, of Crosspoint's ministry, allows the church to be the church on mission with the gospel for Christ. I want to share just a couple of thoughts as we close. In our 2015 budget meeting, we had we had to make a change to the budget because we didn't have enough money to budget going to Uganda in 2015. So we had to postpone the trip to 2016. But in doing so, I commented at, at the meeting that I believe it's important for the work that's going on there that we go in 2015. But if we're going to go, God's going to have to provide. We're going to have to raise the money outside of the budget. And so we were trusting that God would raise the money. And there were many days when I would pray and say, Lord, I don't see how we're going to be able to raise the money to go to Uganda. I just don't see where it's going to come from. I Several others shared that concern, and so we would pray and say, God, you've got to provide. You must provide. Last Sunday morning, before coming into the service, Miss Linda shared with me that someone had given a contribution, an anonymous contribution of $61,000 to Crosspoint, and that 10000 of it had been designated to go towards a Uganda mission trip. (laughs) Praise God, right? (laughs) To God be the glory. 
You see, God provides through his people to advance his kingdom. And if it's a work that God desires to do, he's going to provide for the work and he's going to do it through his people. Don't try to figure out who it was that gave it. Just praise God for that person. One more story about supporting the gospel work of ministry through the church. Cross Point supports Peter and Degwa with $400 a month. And in doing that, Peter travels around to prisons across Kenya, sharing the gospel. Elizabeth was serving a death sentence at Langata Women's Prison for a crime she didn't commit. Her neighbor's house was on fire, and Elizabeth raised alarm. By the time the fire was put out, the neighbor's body was burned beyond recognition. Elizabeth was asked to record a statement and promised that she would be back home in time to see her children in from school. But when she got to the police station, she was locked up in a police cell and taken to court, charged with the murder sentence, and then sentenced for death. Her two children were taken by her brother to live in a rural area with her grandmother. She served four years at Meru Women's Prison in eastern Kenya, and then Elizabeth requested a transfer to Langata Women's Prison. Peter writes, When we took the transformation study guide books to Langata Women's Prison, Elizabeth was the first one to enroll. She says, As for me, this is a letter she wrote, I'm so much grateful for this prison ministry since I came close to it at Langata Women's Prison through the Transformation Study Guides lessons. I joined the Transformation Study Guides class and it transformed me so much as to do the will of God. And I have come to know that the word of God is real and active. When I got in prison, I came to differentiate God's voice from others. The voice of God has come to me through reading and reading the word of God keenly and seriously, declaring it in my life. Now I have come to know obedience to God's voice is the beginning of God's blessing and good life. I determined to continually grow and to grow widely spiritual and to reach many souls. Blessed, be blessed, and my God bless you. Thank you, Elizabeth. The following week, Elizabeth went for her appeal to the court and she found she was found not guilty and she was set free. Elizabeth says this, she says, I'm very thankful to Cross Point church members who enabled the Bible lessons and free Bible to reach her. She also says that many lives were changed and there's been a great impact to others at Langata Women's Prison. She signed her letter, former death row inmate. <laughs> Peter says, let's pray with her that God will bless her as she builds her life afresh and as she seeks to serve God now when she's outside of prison. Church, let me ask us, what do the priorities of your life communicate about who and what you live for? What happens when the church, when we raise up and we prioritize the worship of God in our lives? Here's what happens. God works mightily. God transforms our lives and he transforms the lives of others. And to this we say, to God be the glory. Let me challenge you this morning. 
if God's not the priority in your life, would you quit running? Would you surrender and commit to make him the priority in your life? If you don't know the Jesus of this new covenant that gives eternal life, this morning I want you to know that you can know that Jesus. You can know this Jesus by repenting of your sin, crying out to God and confessing him as Lord, surrendering your life to him. I'll be down front if you have questions about what it means to do that. But right now, I want to challenge us, church, that we would respond to the Lord this morning and however God is prompting it upon your heart to commit to him, to make him a priority in our lives. Don't leave this place without saying, God, you are the priority in my life. Strengthen me to carry that out. Let us pray. Father, to you be the glory. We want everything in our lives to bring you glory. Our marriages, let us prioritize you in our marriages. God, let us prioritize you in our daily lives through trusting in your faithfulness. And Lord, let us prioritize you in everything we do, even in our finances, as we support the work of the gospel ministry. Thank you for allowing us just to be a part of the great way that you are working. So Lord, we ask that you would bless Elizabeth as she builds a new life. And Lord, we pray for for us this morning. Strengthen us, strengthen us to walk with you, to prioritize you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.